I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about a tremendously important new report that CSIS has put out, we have Greg Allen with us who wrote the report. The report is called China's New Strategy for Waging the Microchip Tech War. Greg, welcome to the podcast. I want to just jump right out at it and say, why does the October 7th export controls, in addition to the Netherlands and Japan putting controls on China, why is it such a challenge for China? So the way I lead off in the report, uh, which I think is true, is that October 7th and export controls, you know, these are niche policy topics and dates that might not be broadly familiar to the average American. But in reality, this is one of the most important things that happened last year. I think there are two dates from 2022 that are very likely to echo in the history of international relations. The first, February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, really needs no further elaboration. But the second was this October 7th export controls policy, when the United States really started exploiting its dominance of semiconductor technology choke points to start squeezing China's semiconductor and AI industry in a big way, in a way that really exceeds anything done during the Trump administration, which tended to be targeted at specific firms or uh, in industries like steel and cement, where there was not a durable U.S. technological edge. In the case of these October 7th export controls, the United States has essentially said that we are going to prevent China from achieving their number one technological development priority, which is harnessing the benefits of AI. And because all AI software somewhere has to run on semiconductor hardware, this is a massive challenge. The other reason why these export controls are so significant is that the semiconductor industry is tremendously important from a geopolitical and strategic perspective. China imports more than $350 billion worth of semiconductors every single year. That's more than they spend to import oil. And when the United States essentially says, we are going to exploit our lead in the design of critical chips for AI applications, but also the software and the equipment that allows you to make these chips, we're really exercising technological power on an extraordinary scale. And then as you mentioned, more recently in March, uh, Japan and the Netherlands, which are sort of the other two key countries in the semiconductor equipment space, have basically come along with the United States on these export controls. So if you're China, you're facing a really dramatic challenge that essentially the United States is saying, we are willing to take advantage of our leadership in technological areas to not only restrain the pace of China's technological development, but in some cases to actively degrade the existing state of the art in China's technological industry. And that is the challenge that they are responding to. And since October 7th, the entire world has sort of been dealing with the echoes of this landmark policy. So how does it actually degrade them and how does it keep them at bay and for how long? 
So the policy in October 7th is really an interlocking system of choke points, and there are export controls targeted at each of these choke points. The first is the chips themselves. Uh, the United States is the world leader in chip design, so creating the blueprints that actually go into making these chips. And for AI chips specifically, more than 95% of the market in China for the most advanced AI chips, they're using U.S. chip designs, U.S. chip products. Well, now those most advanced chips can't be sold in China anymore. Then if China wants to make their own chips, well, they would need to use the incredibly advanced software that you have to use to design the blueprints for these chips. Well, there's really only three companies on earth that make high quality software of this type. Turns out they're all American. And now they're cut off uh, for China, at least in terms of designing advanced AI chips. Then there's the factories that actually make these chips. And China is a significant producer of chips. But if you look inside those factories, they're all full of American chip making equipment. And this equipment is not really the sort of thing where you sell it to the customer and then you say, see you later in five years when you want the next model, you really does require a lot of post-sales support. So the equipment vendor sends their staff and they basically live in your factory forever because your, your staff is going to constantly need their help. Well, the United States has essentially said for all the most advanced types of chip making equipment, that can't be sold to China anymore. So this really puts a cap on the technological sophistication that China's chip-making industry can reach. And in cases where Chinese companies had already exceeded that cap, the United States basically put those facilities out of business. Companies like SMIC or YMTC, these were Chinese chip-making companies. They had facilities that were producing chips above the technological sophistication levels uh, specified in the October 7th policy, those facilities have effectively been shut down. So that's what I mean when I say we have sort of actively degraded the technological state of the art in China. So this is a real projection of U.S. power. Absolutely. What has China's reaction to these kinds of export controls been like? This is actually one of the things that is not widely understood, even in Washington. So for the, in order to perform this report, I not only you know, traveled to the major chip-making countries, Taiwan, Japan, uh, and elsewhere, and interviewed executives from all over this industry globally and government officials, but I also reviewed a lot of uh, Chinese government documents, Chinese strategies for the semiconductor industry, and leadership speeches by Chinese government officials. To get the historical context. Exactly. And I think what is so interesting is that in this absolute landmark policy, as I said, it really did echo in the history of international relations. China saw it coming. China expected this to happen. And when your foot is already on the floor, it's hard to give the car more gas. And so as one U.S. government official told me in an interview, on a scale of 1 to 10, even on October 6th, China was already in 11. And so the, the response is perhaps less severe than you might think. And it's because China was already pulling out all the stops. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars worth of subsidies to the Chinese semiconductor industry. We're talking you know, protectionist measures to support the development of China's domestic industry. We're talking the probably the top overall Chinese priority for industrial espionage and foreign talent recruitment. They had already sort of pulled out all the stops because after the Trump administration levied 
firm-specific, company-specific export controls on companies like ZTE and Huawei, they sort of saw the writing on the wall for this policy. And so that's why when the Biden administration decided to implement this much, much stronger policy, it applies to China's semiconductor industry as a whole, not just individual firms, China didn't have a ton more in the policy toolbox that they could reach for. So what are their strategic objectives in actually responding to this? In the report, I identified four overall strategic objectives for China, and they're mostly what you would expect. The first is they want to limit China's exposure to foreign economic pressure. They just want to reduce the ability of the United States and other countries to do this sort of thing to them in the future. The second is they want to deter the United States and our allies from using this type of economic pressure. So that will get to our uh, discussion later, I'm sure, on retaliation. The third is they want to increase international economic dependence on China. And China's leaders are remarkably open on this score. Um, in a speech in April 2020, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, said, quote, we must tighten international production chains dependence on China, forming powerful countermeasures and deterrent capabilities based on artificially cutting off supply to foreigners. And so they're looking for opportunities where they can make the rest of the world dependent upon them and how they can strengthen that ability. And then the fourth strategic objective is just gaining the benefits, both economic and security, of artificial intelligence. As I said, the point of this policy was to choke off China's access to the future of AI technology. Well, they still want that AI technology, export controls or no. So this gets to smuggling the chips into China. This gets into accessing the technology through other means than buying the chips. Cyber theft. Uh, yes. Well, that gets to the industrial espionage point. But I'm talking about training AI models in the cloud, perhaps in other countries. They still want to access this future of AI because they, they care about it. They recognize that it's the future of economic and military power. So that, that brings us to how are they actually retaliating? What are we looking at here and what, what can we expect going forward? So I think historically, Chinese retaliation has been pretty significant when going after U.S. allies or other countries. And that's because China calculates that when they hit, these folks don't necessarily hit back. And the United States almost always hits back. And that's why, in other instances, China's response to export control measures, which, again, usually came out of sort of a legalistic framework, this company has violated these U.S. laws and therefore is subject to these export controls as a penalty. Historically, China's response has been relatively muted. I do think that there is sort of a step change in Chinese retaliation for the October 7th export controls. And right now, that's taking the form of two measures in particular. One is restricting merger approvals, which I realize sounds like something that might not be that big of a deal. But think about this. If you want access to the Chinese market, if you want to be able to sell your goods to China, well, then your company, when it wants to buy another company, merge with another company, it has to go through the antitrust approval process in China. And what China has effectively done is they've said, no American semiconductor company is ever going to get through that process ever again. 
So this actually has pretty significant implications, more than you might think. Companies like Intel, they're in the mo- they're in the midst of changing their entire business model. They're moving from being a company that generally designs and makes their own chips to somebody who makes chips for other people based on other people's designs. And they were hoping to buy this company called Tower uh, in order to acquire the competencies of what is called this sort of foundry business model, this outsourced production business model. Well, China's not approving that merger. And even though it actually would probably increase competition in the market and is not an antitrust concern at all, China's recognizing that this is a way that they can hurt the American semiconductor industry. So that's one big retaliatory response that we're already seeing. The second major retaliatory response is they have this process for cybersecurity reviews. And I don't think that the concern here is actually about cybersecurity. I think that they just identified this bureaucratic instrument that was available to the Chinese government in order to hurt U.S. companies. And China's government has initiated this major cybersecurity review of one U.S. company in particular, Micron, which is a giant in the computer chip memory business. And suddenly, not that long after the October 7th export controls, China has decided that Micron is suddenly a major cybersecurity threat. Uh, And therefore, after this process goes through, potentially will be banned from the entire Chinese market, which depending on the different market segment is about 25 to 33 percent of the entire global market for chip sales. In Micron's case in particular, it's around 12 percent of their business. So just saying you're no longer allowed to sell to China, that's really painful. And the the memory chip market in computers, Micron, Samsung, and SK Hynix of South Korea, they're really the big, big players in this industry. And so if suddenly Samsung and SK Hynix have access to the, the Chinese market, but Micron does not, that's a big problem for them. And so are there other types of U.S. businesses and entities that could be subject to retaliation? Well, I think we've seen this in in some cases in taking a more classically authoritarian approach. It's not yet confirmed, you know, whether or not this had anything to do with Japan levying a series of export controls that broadly resemble those of the the US October 7th ones. But suddenly, Japanese businessmen are being arrested in China at a suspiciously high rate, and they're being charged with espionage, and it's really scary for the business community. The second aspect of this, and I don't think this is necessarily appropriate to classify as retaliation, but it is a big measure that China is doing, is if you want to comply with export controls, you need to know who you're selling to uh, in China. So it is generally allowed to sell to the Chinese commercial market, it is generally not allowed to sell to the Chinese military. Um, And of course, there are different cases depending on the technology. But suddenly, uh, Chinese authorities have raided the offices of companies like Mints. And these are the types of companies that help other companies do due diligence on their Chinese customers. So when a US computer chip company wants to sign a letter to the US government testifying that the chips that I'm selling are only going to the Chinese commercial market. They're not going to the Chinese military. It's the due diligence efforts of firms like Mints that help them do that. Well, suddenly the Chinese authorities are cracking down on companies like Mints and really making it impossible 
for them to operate in the Chinese market. If this continues, it's really going to be a sea change in what it's like for international companies to sell in China. And that's just yet another uh, measure that I do think it is fair to say is sort of a step change in China's response to previous export control reactions. It's really scary. I mean, it- you know, it's not too hard to imagine, and you know, this might be a stretch, but if they're arresting Japanese businessmen, what's to stop them from arresting American businessmen who are in China? Absolutely. And if you recall a few years back, you know, there was a senior Huawei executive who was put under house arrest in Canada, and China started grabbing a bunch of Canadian business executives. There's a lot fewer Canadian business executives living in China these days because kind of the business community got spooked. It's totally plausible that we would see something like that. And I think in China's case, it doesn't seem that they're really taking into account what the likely U.S. response is for some of these measures. I mentioned before that most export controls to China are calibrated on a no military end use, no military end user basis. Well, the semiconductor export controls for the most advanced AI chips actually apply on a new approach, which is a China-wide basis. That's because the U.S. government had ascertained that China's policy of civil-military fusion effectively made it impossible for companies to accurately determine which of their customers were secretly a shell company front for the Chinese military. So the reason why I bring this up is that the U.S. government has a demonstrated willingness in the October 7th policy to say, China, if you make it impossible for us to target export controls precisely, we are willing to target export controls imprecisely to China as a whole. And that's why I think this move to start raiding the offices of these due diligence firms might seem like this sort of niche community, but actually it could have really massive ramifications for the overall U.S.-China trading relationship. It could force the United States to start applying more and more export controls on a countrywide basis, not just a no military end use basis. You know, and Clearly, there's national security reasons for what we're doing, but some might say, are we cutting off our nose to spite our face? Because if we Americans can't do business in China, doesn't that ultimately hurt us even down to the consumer level? I think there's that's a perfectly reasonable reaction, but I think there's two things that are built into the October 7th policy that sort of take that into account. First, the global semiconductor industry is surprisingly consolidated. Um, There's a relatively short list of countries that really matter. In the case of semiconductor manufacturing equipment, for example, the United States, Japan, and the Netherlands Just those three countries is the vast majority of the global semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And now all three of those countries have these types of export controls. And so it's not the case where, and this would have been a a disaster if this had happened in the policy, where the United States is refusing to sell to China, but now Japan is going to step in. That's not going to happen, which helps a lot, I think, uh, in terms of the policy. The second thing to remember is, is what I said earlier. 
China already had its foot all the way down on the gas. There wasn't that much that really changed in Chinese behavior. They were already determined to kick out the Americans as soon as they could. In fact, there's this uh, amazing document number eight, which is the sort of Chinese government semiconductor strategy uh, circa 2020. So before the October 7th, 2022 export controls. And it describes the need for importing foreign semiconductor manufacturing equipment as a temporary measure, a temporary measure on the road to self-reliance. If you look at the, the development plan for semiconductors, China is determined to kick out foreign companies just as soon as they possibly can. And at the same time, there's all these mechanisms by which China is determined to extract as much technological know-how as it possibly can from these companies. To just give you one example, in Chinese-owned semiconductor factories, they will run a set of Chinese production equipment, which tends to be pretty lousy, side-by-side side with U.S.-built or other foreign-built semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And they'll have the same production staff operate both sets of machinery. And then the production staff, which will be you know, Chinese citizens, will then provide feedback back to the Chinese equipment maker. And they'll say, hey, here's all the stuff that the foreign equipment company does that your system doesn't do. Here's all the changes you need to improve your system. So China really was already pulling out all the stops in terms of kicking out foreign companies as fast as they possibly could. And I don't think the October 7th policy actually moved the needle there. Xi Jinping, other Chinese leaders already viewed this as a national security priority. So, Greg, just to close, is there anything more that the United States should and can do in this regard? Absolutely. I would say the, the two things that the United States government needs to get after is, one, broadening the multilateral nature of these export controls. It is definitely the case that Japan and the Netherlands were by far the most urgent and important allies to get on board. Uh, but other countries do matter here. Uh, South Korea has a small but sophisticated semiconductor equipment industry. And Germany is not really a major player in the equipment industry, but they are a major player in the equipment components industry. And if Chinese companies show up with tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in government subsidies and offer you know, South Korea, how would you like to help us replicate you know, the U.S. and the Japanese and the Dutch technology, we'll give you monopoly access to the Chinese market plus unlimited subsidies. That's going to be a pretty attractive offer. And so you know, China is decades behind the international state of the art when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing equipment. South Korea is not. They are behind the international state of the art, but not by decades. And so if there is not some kind of arrangement by which South Korea joins these export controls, it really changes the prospects uh, for China. That's one thing that needs to be done. The second thing that needs to be done is to strengthen the policy's ability to achieve its overall intention, which was to limit China's ability to access advanced AI technology. So that comes down to, you know, how do we prevent smuggling in of these chips? Chip-making equipment is basically impossible to smuggle because it's huge, it's incredibly expensive, it requires a lot of post-sale support and software updates. These companies know where every single one of their machines is worldwide. But the chips, they're small, they're lightweight, these are, these are categories that smugglers love. 
And the Bureau of Industry and Security is this agency at the U.S. Department of Commerce, and they're responsible for enforcing these export controls. Well, if you were Russia, right, and the United States said that we're going to use export controls to cripple your economy, or if you're China and the United States is telling you that we're going to use export controls to prevent you from achieving your number one technology modernization goal. What do you think happened to the budget for Russian smugglers this year? What do you think happened to the budget for Chinese smugglers this year? Didn't go down, but the budget for the Bureau of Industry and Security has not increased anything close to adequately to reflect its new role at the center of technology and national security policy in the United States. Sounds like a problem Congress needs to address right away. That's my thought as well. Greg, thank you very much for being here. Um, really appreciate your insight. And it's a terrific new report. It's front and center on our website. I hope all of our listeners will take a look at it. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 